Well, how many of you know worship is not just singing slow songs about Jesus? You bet. In fact, the word comes from worth-ship. And we're going to see that today. We're going to see that there's a lot of ways in which we worship the Lord that are not, in fact, song. There are ways that we worship the Lord in song, obviously. We just did. But there are other ways as well. And we're going to see that in today's um, passage. So turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 35. I will admit to you, last time I may have dived a little too deeply. I got through all of seven verses. I'm going to try to cover a little bit more today. So, today, God willing, we're going to finish up chapter 35. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about what we see in this chapter. I think it's directly relevant to where we are today. What we really see in this chapter is a personal revival. It's a revival of Jacob. It is Jacob coming out of the lethargy that he's been in for a while. And if that's you, I hope that today can be a catalyst for you to see personal revival as well. If you've just kind of been going through the motions... If you've been kind of stuck in a rut, if you will, spiritually, I hope that today will be part of pushing you out of that, part of getting you focused back again on the Lord and seeing the passion for Christ come back out. So Genesis 35 is really centered on Jacob making good on his promises to the Lord. We will see Jacob demonstrating his signs of this devotion in chapter 35. We went over a couple of those last time. We're going to see a few more today. I want you to notice this on the heels of one of the darkest periods of his life. Remember, there was the defiling of Dinah, and then his sons decide to take revenge, and they go into the town. They murder all the men of Shechem. It's a very dark passage, and it's a very dark time in Jacob's life. And yet, on the heels of this very dark time is this explosion, this personal revival. The Lord does this work. We'll see him drawing near to God again. We'll see a renewed hunger and a passion for the Lord again. And in earlier chapters, we we saw God giving his word to Jacob over and over and over. Actually, we saw him giving his word to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob over and over and over. And we see God making good on his word like God always does. And now, chapter 35, now it's time for Jacob to make good on his word, on his vows. It's time for Jacob to to uphold his end of the deal, you might say. It's, It's time for him to make good on all those beautiful words he spoke to God. I don't know if you think about that, but you speak some very beautiful words to God when we're singing these worship songs. You've probably spoken beautiful words to God in the prayers that you've prayed over the years. But there's going to come a point where God is going to test your faith. The Bible promises that. And if you endure the testing of your faith, it will produce patience. The Bible goes on to say in the book of James, let patience have its perfect work, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Your your faith will be tested to see what sort it is. And it's not going to be tested because God doesn't know what kind of faith you have. Sadly, you don't know what kind of faith you have. It's very easy for us to think we're farther along in our faith than we are, or we're stronger in our faith than we are. 
And sometimes God will take us through a test so that we can see exactly where we are. Are we really trusting in Him? Are we really following Him the way we say we are? And if not, then it's time for us to repent. And if so, well, don't get haughty. If so, if you pass the test with flying colors, it's because the Lord has given you the strength for that. And you can then help others going through that same test. That's what uh, Corinthians tells us. Okay, so before we get into all of that, though, let's pray. Lord, we pray you'd show us great things from your word today. God, I ask you would use me as a mouthpiece today to encourage and edify your people through the truth of your word. Let my preaching and my teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit. Speak today to your people, Lord, through your word. For the building up, for the edification of your people, and for the advancement of your kingdom. May all that's said and done today bring glory and honor only to you, because you're the only one worthy of it. It's in Jesus' holy name we ask. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, chapter 35, Genesis chapter 35, starting at verse 1. Let's take a bird's eye view of these first seven verses. We exposited them last time. We're going to just kind of go over them quickly, and then we're going to get into the rest of this. Okay? 35 verse 1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, Beit El, Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And if you'll recall, I told you last time, there are four imperatives nestled into that one little verse. What are imperatives? They are commands from God. They're commands from God. What are the four commands? He tells Jacob, get up, arise, right? Just kind of a way of saying, okay, stop being depressed and, and you know, roll, rolling around in the dust. Get up. I've got something for you to do. Get up. Go down to Bethel. Dwell there. Make an altar there. There's so much in that verse I told you last time. Remember, Jacob has just settled into the place he's at. He's bought land. How would you like that? You just found your dream home in your mind. Buy a bunch of land and God says, okay, uh, it's time for you to move. But he does. And where will he be moving? Jacob, get up, leave your house, come to my house. Beit El, Bethel, literally means the house of God. Come back to this place where you and I met the first time. It's a combination of two Hebrew words, by the way. Beit means house or dwelling place. El is the shortened form of Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for God. So originally it would have been pronounced Be'el, Be'el, which then, you know, over the years, Be'tel, Bethel, you can see where we went with that. Bethel means God's house or the house of God. And remember that that name came from Jacob's encounter with God there years before. Remember, he was, he was really taken by what had happened. Now, this is a very important point of this passage. Don't miss this. He meets with God there the first time. Remember, he has the, the dream, Jacob, they call it Jacob's ladder. He has the dream, he sees a staircase, he sees angels coming up and down, ascending and descending from heaven. He sees the Lord standing at the top of the staircase. He sees the pre-incarnate Jesus standing at the top of the staircase. He wakes up and says, wow, how awesome is this place? This is the house of God. He was here all along and I never even knew it. I'm going to build an altar here. This is an awesome place. He's taken by this, this 
encounter he just had. He's taken by the place where he just had this encounter. And that's important. Because we're going to see a massive difference between then and the time where he comes back. Remember, that was a long time ago. More than 20 years ago when he had that encounter with God. And he was fascinated by this place because of God. And so he renames the place. It was Luz before. He renames it God's house. Beit El. And that's, that's setting something up. Don't let that go. I'm setting you up to come back, right? That was my uppercut so I can come back with a hook. We've got, we're setting this up. We've got something to hit it with later here. <clears throat> Remember back in Genesis 24, this is what happened. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so he names the place Bethel. Okay. He also made a vow that day, though. And that's important to our story. He was so awestruck and humbled by that encounter that in verse 20, back there in Genesis 28, verse 20, he had made a vow saying, If God will be with me and he'll keep me in the way that I go, and if he'll give me bread to eat, clothing to wear, so I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, notice it's not an altar, it's a pillar. Why is that a big deal? Because altars and pillars are used for two different things. And we're going to get into that today. This stone, which I've set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. All right, so he has made a vow to God. We also see something here about Jacob. His faith at that point in chapter 28 was in its infancy. He doesn't understand everything about God. You understand where I'm going with that? You ever met a, you met a new believer? You met somebody that just comes to faith? They've got a lot of zeal, but sometimes their theology is a bit askew. Right? What does Jacob say that's so crazy? This stone is going to be God's house? Does God dwell inside the stone? Is it the place that's given God such power? Of course not. But that was the thinking of the culture. In fact, in that day and age, you would schedule and plan out your battles according to the geography. Do you know that? And that was because different um, societies, different cultures believed that their gods were more suited to the plains or more suited to the valleys or more suited to the high places. And so they had more strength and, 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 and more influence given what the terrain was. But that's not really true of this God, is it? No. The God that he's serving has all strength in all places. <coughs> but it's still an important place because it's where God first made himself uh, made Jacob very aware of his presence. And so Jacob sets up a pillar. And that's a, that's a good thing to do. A pillar is kind of like, you know, when you're running down the road, you see the historical marker over there? Right? You stop and you get out and you kind of read the placard there. Like, what happened here? Well, something happened there that was so significant. It was historically important enough to memorialize. Something happened here that we want other people to remember because it affected, it changed the course of history. And that's basically what Jacob is saying. He's saying, I had an encounter here with God, and it changed me. It changed my direction. 
It changed the course of my life, my family's life. It changed what would have been the narrative of our life. This has changed history. I want people to remember this. And so he sets up a pillar. That's what a pillar is for. When you see pillars in the Old Testament, it's always a place of remembrance. It's not a place of sacrifice. Not what a pillar is for. It's a place of remembrance. So Jacob sets up this place and says, there's this place here for me to remember what happened. I want, I want to remember it. I want to also, I'm going to tell my kids about this. See this pillar here, kids? Know what happened here? If you're a dad, you might have done that before. Right? You go on vacation, you got the whole family with you, and all your kids are like, what are we doing? Why are we stopping on the side of the road? I just want to get McDonald's. I can't, this is important. Be quiet, listen. Right? You're reading to them, oh, there's a battle that was fought here a long time ago. Tell them what's going on, right? It's important. Why is it important? Later on, when they get older, they take the same trip. They stop at the same place. They tell their kids the same thing. Be quiet. We'll get McDonald's in a little. Hold on. Really important here, okay? Listen. I want you to know this stuff. There are some things that are important enough to know that we make sure our kids know them even if they don't want to. Even if it seems boring at the time. so boring. Even if it seems boring, yeah, are you still going to learn this anyway? Uh, I just want to check my Instagram. Come on. Trust me, as a high school teacher, I finished my 16th year a couple days ago. I've never seen that in class before, right? Why do we have to go to this stuff? It's so boring. I know. I know. It's not on your Instagram, your Twitter, your Snapchat. It doesn't exist. But this is actually important enough we want you to know it, okay? It's the same thing with Jacob. <laughs> not saying his kids have Snapchat or whatever. That would be interesting back in those days. Guys, check out my new ride. It's a camel. He spits. Right? It's not probably what happened. But it was important enough. <laughs> I don't know where that comes from. I'm sorry. for I'm ADD me. It was important enough, though, he's saying, we're going to memorialize this whether you like it or not. We're going to set up a pillar here so we can see. We can know. You can know what happened here. It's important for you to know this. And it was important. But we're going to see there's a difference between that time and the time where he comes back. He has grown in his faith. And he's been in the doldrums. His faith has been kind of on, you know, kind of on the back burner. He's kind of been in, you know, neutral, if you will. Maybe he hasn't had the same fire and passion as he did. But we're going to see God working in his heart. We're going to see a rekindling of that fire, a rekindling of that passion. We're going to see him recommitting himself to the Lord and to his work and to his kingdom. And I hope you'll take that very thing away today as well. Maybe that's been you. I'll admit to you that's definitely been me. I can get so busy, especially at this time of the year. March, April, May to me is like you... Good luck. You text me, you call me, like, good luck. Because I'm working sun up to sundown, I promise. I'm not looking at my text messages and my phone calls until I get inside. There's just, and I get so busy. It's kind of like the parable of the sower, where the Lord talks about you can become so busy and so choked with the cares of life that it makes the word unfruitful. I can do that. I'm telling you right now. I need God to come in and reset me. This is not what's most important. Christ is what's most important. I, I'm telling you, I need. it's one of the things I love about youth camp every year. And I think the same thing, by the way, goes on a longer time with our kids. Because kids can be the same way. So I'm excited about youth camp coming up, partly because of that. 
I think it's a great time to be a reset, to be a, hey, listen, don't worry about all those distractions and cares of the world. This is what's necessary, right? Sit down for just a second, Martha. Sit at Jesus' feet. This is what's most important. This good thing. So Jacob's made this vow, though. He's made a vow to God. And now God is telling Jacob the time has come for him to make good on that vow. You said these things. You promised these things to me. Did you really mean it or not? Anybody can say words. Were yours empty or were they meaning? About to find out. So he tells Jacob to go and make an altar at Bethel. Jacob knows when he hears that what's going on. There's only one thing you do at an altar. You sacrifice. Jacob knows God wants me to come to Bethel. And he wants me to make the sacrifice that I promised him years ago. I said, if you'll, remember Jacob said this. He said, if you'll provide for me, when I come back here in peace, I'll give you a tenth of everything. Now, where did he learn that? Why a tenth? Why not a half? Why not a twentieth? Why a tenth? Well, that's what he saw his dad do, Isaac. That's what he saw Abraham do. Those were the men that were carrying the blessing. Those were the fathers of the faith. He saw that's the pattern, so this is the pattern I'm going to do. So he does. Time has come to go to Bethel and sacrifice. Back to chapter 35, verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I've gone. In other words, My God, who is faithful, is now asking me to be faithful to my word. And he's never been unfaithful or wronged me, and I'm not about to do it to him. So get up. Get changed. Purify yourselves. We're going. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, so I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and who's been with me wherever I've gone. And so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods, that is, idols, They gave to Jacob all the idols that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob buried them or hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Why would he do this? They're not coming back to Shechem. I told you last time, this is demonstration of devotion number one from Jacob. Your devotion to God is demonstrated through your holiness. Are you willing to put away the idols? Are you willing to hide them away? Put them to death. Why the earrings? I told you about this last time. In that culture, it was very common for people to take the little idol and they would dress it up and they would put a lot of times they would even put earrings on it. And they would put earrings on their ears to match. They would dress themselves to match their idol. They would give the same jewelry to the idol as they wore. (coughs) And that was a way for them to show everybody else... (coughs) That they were committed to this idol. They were a follower of this idol. Don't tell me we're so civilized we've come so far. We do the same things today. Anyway, Jacob tells everybody in his household, bring him to me. We can tell he's kind of been in the doldrums. He hadn't really cared up to this point, but he cares now. Good for him. You know what, dads? It's a good example for us to follow. Sometimes we've been too lax on some things, and then you find out, you know what, I've been too lax. 
I've got to, I've got to be more serious about enforcing this. Well, it's okay to sit down and have that discussion with your family. It's okay to have that, you know, the table talk. My dad called him that. We'd bring everybody. We'd say, family meeting. My brother and I hated when we heard those things. Oh, we're having a family meeting. Because that meant all the family was going to sit around the big dinner table, and we're going to have a serious talk about something. And usually we were getting in trouble for something, okay? I'm getting in trouble, and we're having a talk. This is not going to be good. Not always. But there were some times where we had those big family meetings, the family discussions, because, hey, you know what? I've let you guys get away with some of this. It's not good. I'm not going to let you get away with it again. This is your one and only, that's what he would say. This is your one and only warning. The next time this happens, I'm coming down on you like a sack of hammers. Like, okay. Yes, sir. And he did not make, I promise you, he did not make idle threats. So I knew, okay, we've got to change our way. Well, that's what Jacob's doing. He's saying, this has gone on in the camp. I've allowed it. I've kind of overlooked it. I've turned the other way, the blind eye. I haven't cared like I should care, but I care. Get rid of all of those idols. Bring me those earrings, those, you know, those jewelry pieces that you've stuck on those stupid little pieces of wood. Bring them to me. They're going away. Which says something because he could have just, why not just melt them? It's gold, man. It's valuable. Why not just melt it down and reuse it? He was making a point. You've defiled this. You've offered this to some other God. You've offered this to an idol. I will not take it. It's defiled. Get rid of it. He's making a point. Remember, your devotion to God is demonstrated through holy living. We live in a time where people hate that word. They hate that phrase. Holiness. And I mean church people. But it's not going away. We're commanded to be holy over and over and over, not just in the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. In fact, we are called a holy people. You must recommit yourself to living in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. Colossians 1, 9 through 10 says this. So the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will, that is God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that... You might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to Him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You demonstrate your devotion to God by the way you live your life. By the holiness with which you live. When we say holiness, what do we mean? We're set apart. That's what it means to be holy. You're set apart to to God. We have entire churches today, even groups of churches, dedicating to being as much like the world as possible, even through, even though the book of James tells us that the friendship with the world is enmity with God. Even though we know that for us to go and try to be as much like the world as we can, we are making ourselves an enemy of God. We still want to. You know why? We want to fit in. It's uncomfortable not to fit in at work. It's uncomfortable not to fit in at school. It's uncomfortable not to fit in with your unregenerate family. But God has called us to be a holy people, set apart for Him. And if that causes us discomfort, and newsflash, it will, then that's the price that we pay. That's the price of the sacrifice at the altar that we pay to follow Christ. One of the promises of the New Testament that no word of faith or ever wants to hear is that Everyone who desires 
to live like Christ will suffer persecution. Everyone. You desire to live a holy life set apart for Christ. You will be persecuted. Maybe a little bit, maybe a lot. You'll be mocked. You'll be laughed at. You'll be scoffed at. Maybe worse. But that is part of living a Christian life. We're following Christ. Jacob understands what a serious thing it is to draw near to God. And he tells his household, we are set apart for God. Now act like we're set apart for God. I used to hate that. My mom would say that to me. She would get on to me. Act like a Christian. The problem was I wasn't a Christian. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Kind of got the cart before the horse there. Make no mistake, God calls us to be a holy people. He commands holiness for his people. And we demonstrate our devotion to God. One of the ways we demonstrate our devotion to God is by the holiness by which we live our life. Now listen, I am not saying that the earrings were evil, by the way. I, I, I literally had somebody ask me that, so let me clarify. No, I'm not saying the earring in itself is evil. Or the clothing in itself was evil. But when the earring or the clothing is worn to honor an idol, it is evil. And that's what Jacob is saying. Give me that stuff that you've devoted to gods other than our God. It's going in the trash. No, 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 but I can reuse it. I can use... No, 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 no. You lost that privilege. It's done. Let's go on. Verse 5. And so they journeyed, and as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. There was terror on the cities around them, so that they did not come after him. Because remember what they were scared of. They had just had, literally, the boys had gone in and killed all the men in Shechem. And they're scared. They know these people's families live in these surrounding villages and towns. And Jacob had told him that. We're in trouble, boys. You've made us a target. Now everybody's going to come after us. And instead, God is saying, I took care of that. Jacob, I promised to take care of you. And I'm well able. I'm well able to take care of you even when your kids screw up. Parents, did you hear that? Trust me, my parents were very happy about that at a certain point in my life, I'm sure. Yeah. But they screwed up. That doesn't mean he's not watching. It doesn't mean he hasn't seen. He was not taken by surprise. Okay? He was not taken by surprise by their rash, unwise decision. It didn't shock him. It didn't throw him off his throne. Verse 6, And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now that's an interesting name, El Bethel. El Bethel. Because that means God of the house of God. And I told you this last time. This is demonstration number two for Jacob. He's demonstrating his devotion to God through his obedience. And you demonstrate your devotion to God through your obedience as well. When God says, this is what I want you to do, are you willing to do it? Or do you just need to qualify it 
Change it around. Well, I'm only willing to follow you this far, God. How far did Jacob obey? How should God be obeyed? He's God. How should he be obeyed? Completely and immediately. That's how he should be obeyed. Partial obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. He should be he should be obeyed completely, not partially, and immediately. The commands of God are to be obeyed completely and immediately, and that's exactly what we see Jacob doing, and that's exactly what we as Christians should be doing as well. In this case, what has the Lord commanded of him? What did he obey? What did God say? God commanded him to go and build an altar. And why an altar? Because there's sacrifice involved. But notice something else here. It's very, very important. And this was the setup from earlier. Notice the first time that Jacob comes here, he's really taken with the place. How awesome is this place? I'm going to rename this place to Beth El, the house of God. But now he's not taken with the place. He's not taken with the trappings around him. He's not taken with, remember, that was his entire prayer. His entire prayer was about the things that God could do for him, the things that God could provide for him. Hey, God, if you're going to be with me, if you'll watch over me, if you'll make sure I have clothes to wear, if you'll do all of this, I'll give you a tenth of it. Everything is about stuff. And so when he comes to that place, he goes, this place is awesome. But now he's not taken by this place. He's focused on the God of this place. This place, we're going to call it El Bethel. Here's the God of God's house. He's not overcome with awe by the place, but by the God of the place. And folks, I hate to admit this, but we can be the same way. I think part of it is just how much of an influence some of the word of faith heretical nonsense has had on the church in America. Because it makes it basically takes God and distills him down into what he can do for you. Follow God and he'll give you riches. Follow God, you'll have health. Follow God, everything in your life will go right. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case for all the people that I read about in the scriptures. Yes, it's true that God was with Jacob. Jacob also went through incredible trial. Was Jacob blessed by God? Sure he was. Absolutely he was blessed. But he also went through incredible trial too. Somehow we get to leave that out. Well, if you get just your eyes on the trappings around God, you know what will happen to your faith? It does this. Based on what's going on in your life. It just vacillates up and down. Oh, everything's going well today. I got a new job. I got a raise. I got a nice house. We got the big car. Bless God. What about trial? Same thing. Parable of the sower. Jesus talks about that. He says there's these people who they don't have a root in themselves. They're not really rooted in Christ. They're not really rooted in God. And so when the trials and afflictions come, they fade away. They spring up real quickly. They're that plant. They, oh, man, everything's wonderful. But as soon as hard times come, they fade. Well, that's not real faith. It's not saving faith. 
No, Jacob here is now fixated on the God of God's house, not the place. Which brings us to demonstration number three. Your devotion to God is also demonstrated through your sacrifice. Jacob has come here for one reason. He knows God has said, come down here and build an altar. Which is tantamount to saying, get down here and make a sacrifice. Jacob leaves the place where he has bought land. That's a sacrifice. He comes to Bethel. He makes the altar. He comes straightway. Makes the altar. What for? To sacrifice. And he does exactly that. In fact, that is such a um, mundane part of the text that we're just left with inference. Why? Because obviously Jacob would do that. It's not only your holiness and your obedience that demonstrates your devotion to God. It's also your sacrifice. Sacrifice has been a part of real Christianity since real Christianity existed. You know why there are so many hospitals today that have names like Presbyterian Hospital, Baptist Hospital, Methodist Hospital? You know why there are so many orphanages? And by the way, not just hospitals in America. Not just orphanages in America. I mean world Wide. Because a whole bunch of people in those denominations sacrificed a lot to make those institutions. Same thing for schools. Those institutions were not bought with government money. Those institutions were paid for, by and large, by the sacrifice of people in pews. It's interesting to me there's no word of faith hospitals. I wonder why that is. Well, if you're in a movement that basically says if you have a whole bunch of money, you should lavish it on yourself, you're not going to have a lot of sacrifice. Sacrifice is part of real Christianity. Are you willing to sacrifice for the Lord? What are you willing to sacrifice for the Lord? You willing to sacrifice your reputation? I had a conversation with a guy a couple of years ago who's very, very wealthy, well-to-do, has a very popular position in the culture. We had a long talk about theology. And he's like, listen, I agree with your theology. And man, I'm telling you, I I wish I could be part of you guys' church. And I'm like, well, why aren't you then? You understand. I mean, I got to... I've got all these people, these like business contacts at church where I go. There's, there's just kind of a certain level of, you know, kind of social credulity that you've got to kind of maintain. Well, do you agree with the doctrine that's being taught? Like, no, I've got so much problems. with. He literally tells me, I have so many problems with the doctrine that during the church service, me and my wife will go, we'll just drive around in the car and listen to a sermon. And then we come back at the end of service. What? Why? Well, he's not willing to sacrifice his reputation. Our reputation's too high. You willing to sacrifice your popularity? What about your time? What about your money? How about your convenience? Sometimes we're really good to serve the Lord as long as the Lord is on our timetable, right? Don't worry, I'm looking at me when I say that. Jacob's devotion to the Lord is being demonstrated here in the fact that he's willing to sacrifice all of that 
It's not convenient for him to pick up and go to Bethel. His reputation and popularity are obviously at an all-time low. Time, money, convenience, he's sacrificed it all. How about you? I love Jesus. Yes, I do. Do you? Do you love him enough to sacrifice for him? People you really love, you will sacrifice for. I'll tell you a story that embarrasses my wife every time I tell it. But when we were dating, she was just finishing. We were getting ready to be married. She was finishing her last year at OU. And we were going to get married two weeks after she graduated. And she's writing her senior thesis papers. And uh, one night, she calls me. She's just in tears. I'm like, what's going on? And some of y'all can't understand this because if you're young enough, you just know autosave. Like, if you screw up, it's okay. The computer saved your paper. You might have lost a sentence or two, right? Didn't used to be that way. She had lost a large portion of this massive, like a 30-page paper. She's like, all I've got is like 10 pages. I'm not saying you should go write somebody else's paper for them. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just telling you what I did. (laughs) So I drove up there. She worked on one paper and I worked on the other all night. Went back to school. I got there right before school started, right? Why? Because I loved her. You're willing to sacrifice for people you love. Now, we've got a whole bunch of people here. And we'll say, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. And my question is, do you love him enough to sacrifice for him? The Bible calls that act of sacrifice worship. Worship is not just singing slow songs about the love of Jesus. When Jacob built that altar, he built that altar to sacrifice and to worship the Lord. As we told his family, we're going down here, we're going to worship God. Are they going to go down there? Hey, everybody get an instrument, we're all going to sing slow songs. No. Now listen, singing songs about Jesus is obviously part of worship. I'm not saying it's not. But I'm saying when they came down here to worship, they came down to sacrifice. And that's part of worship for God. And it's part of worship for God that's not going away. And sometimes we forget about it. Sacrifice is an act of worship too. When that young mother wakes up in the middle of the night to feed a crying baby, when she sacrifices her sleep, her convenience... Her comfort to take care of that precious little soul that God has entrusted to her. She is literally engaging in an act of worship to God. That baby is just the incidental receiver of the things that happen because of that worship. It's good for the baby. When my wife does the same thing in our place, when she over and over and over again makes food that our kids eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. How many of you know boys can eat? And as they get bigger, they eat more. You're like, how can you put down that many calories and not gain a whole bunch of weight, right? She's doing that because of love, but she's also worship. She's worshiping God through those mundane acts Those mundane sacrifices that moms and dads make on the regular, those are acts of worship. Those mundane sacrifices that husbands and wives make for each other regularly, those are still acts of worship. 
that man, that dog-tired man who goes off to his job at the end of the week, he gets there on time like every other day. He goes to a job that maybe he doesn't love, but he knows this pays the bills. He sacrifices his sleep, his convenience, his comfort to provide for that precious family that God has entrusted to him. He is engaging in an act of worship. That is a worshipful act before God. He is sacrificing for the Lord because that's what the Lord has asked him to do. When that teenage girl picks up the little crying brother or sister or washes the dishes, does a few loads of laundry, she helps around the house so that her exhausted mom or dad doesn't have to do it all when she sacrifices her convenience and comfort to pitch in and help with the hundreds of little thankless tasks that need to be done to keep a family going, she is engaging in an act of worship. That's what I think when I, when I see Scotland grab her little brother, help him out. It's an act of worship. When 25 people work hours on end to get all that VBS stuff made, the props made, the lessons set up, the games prepped, the food made, the crafts set up, etc., etc., or the entire team of people spend a week at youth camp cooking, cleaning, getting things set up for a bunch of kids. I'll tell you what they're not doing much of. They're not doing much of sleeping. Why? They are engaging in an act of worship and sacrificing those things. Why? Because I love Christ. And because of that, I'm going to sacrifice for him. He asks me to engage in these sacrifices, and so I will. That is an act of worship. Don't think for a moment the Lord doesn't notice those kind of sacrifices. That's still worship for the Lord. If you're devoted to God, it'll show in your sacrifice. I wish I had more time. Let's go on. Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. This is verse 8. And she was buried under an oak tree below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. Now, Deborah was Rebecca's nurse. Okay, remember that. So she would have likely been something kind of like a grandma to those kids. She was a very well-known, very well-loved member of this family. Alon Bakuth means the tree of weeping or the oak of weeping. He was obviously mourned greatly. Got an entire sermon about that, but I don't have time. Let's go on. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. So this is the second time he's appearing. And notice what he says here. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Question, has God said this before to Jacob? Yes. Why is he repeating himself? God said to him, verse 11, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your own body. And the land that I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him. Question. Has he said that stuff to him before? Yeah. Well, then why is he saying it again? Why is he repeating himself? You want to know something? It's very interesting. That's actually a pattern in the life of the patriarchs. God will meet up with them and he'll say something to them. And then they'll kind of go on their way and God will meet up with them again a few years later and he'll say the same thing. He'll repeat himself over and over and over. Why? I hate to tell you this, but we are forgetful hearers. It's easy to hear something, 
See, it's easy for us to do this today. We read something out of God's word and we go, that is life-changing. I've got to change the way I live because of this passage. And so you change the way you live because of that passage. That's part of sanctification. You're growing in holiness. And you know what happens 10, 15, 20 years down the road? It kind of gets fuzzy again. And then someone comes along like me this morning and they say, hey, here's what this passage says. And you go, man, I remember reading that. That passage like revolutionized my life. But I needed to be remembered. I've kind of gotten slack on this area. I need to be reminded of that again. We can be forgetful hearers. And God is telling him over and over and over. And he's so good to you and I. He does the same thing. He gives us his word. He doesn't tell us new things. He reinforces over and over and over and over to us these very important things. Why? Because we need it. We are forgetful hearers. And notice what Jacob does. And this is because he doesn't want to be a forgetful hearer anymore. This is the second time God meets up with him. And what does verse 14 say? And so Jacob set up a pillar. I'm going to remember this. He set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. I'm going to set this up so I don't forget it. There are certain things that God says to you and you want to make sure you remember it. What do you do? Get it put up on a plaque. Engrave it on a plaque and put it up on your, you know, your, your walls of your house. You get a poster that says something. Why? Because it's good enough. You want to remember it. You want to be reminded of it. You make a memorial of some sort. You write it out on a piece of paper and you tape it up to your wall. I have a little scripture that's literally taped up to my computer screen at work. Why? Because I need to remember this, be reminded of this every day. And I can forget about it. He sets up a pillar. He wants to remember. He's making a memorial. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. Demonstration number four. Your devotion to God is demonstrated through your remembrance. What are those things that are so important you're willing to teach them to your children? You're willing to tell them to strangers. Here are these things that God has done for me. I got really convicted of this last month when I was preaching through this. And so I started telling my kids some stories about just times where God had taken care of me over the years. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I should have known better than to have done that at bedtime. Because then it becomes, tell us another one, Dad. Tell us another one. Like, I get it. Yeah, you're just trying to stay awake. I get it. I've told you all the stories I can think of, right? But those are important. Why are they important for you to tell those stories to your kids? Because they're, they're important enough for your kids to know about them. And someday your kids may want to tell them to their kids. My family, I have a... Uh, my dad's dad's death. So my dad's grandpa was in World War uh, One, and he was in a very very bad battle. And a lot of the guys in his unit were killed, and yet God spared him. And you know he was in the foxhole praying that God would watch over him before they went into the battle, and God did. And and we he literally brought home things from the war as a memorial. Do you know what one of the things he brought home as a memorial was? A grenade. From that battle. We didn't know that until my grandpa died. And they're going through the house, like going through his things, you know, organizing these things. And they're like, uh, I don't, is that, 
Is that what I think that is? Literally got to call the sheriff's office. He got to come and dispose of a grenade. Why in the world would a guy bring a grenade home from war? Because it was a memorial. It was very important. The sentiment that was being conveyed there was important. Maybe not the best choice of, you know, war memorabilia. But the sentiment was good. Your devotion is demonstrated through your remembrance. Jacob is doing the same thing. Why make a pillar? It's the historical marker. By the way, this is also the first mention in the Bible of the drink offering. What's that? Well, by, by the way, this is a different kind of drink offering than we're going to find out later, like in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. This was sometimes called a libation offering. Why would you pour out a drink offering? Well, what was the most important resource in that area? Water. You're literally pouring out your life. And that was the symbolism. Jacob is saying, I'm going to pour out my life. Everything's for you, God. The Apostle Paul referenced the drink offering. His final letter before his death, he writes to Timothy. Second Timothy was the final letter before Paul died. He writes to Timothy, and what does he say? What does he say? He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. He's saying, my life is being poured out for Christ. That's what a drink offering is. That's what Jacob's doing. And that's what I'm asking you to do today. Not to make a physical drink offering. But to see that your life is for Christ. That it should be poured out for him. For his service. It's also referenced in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, by the way, where it speaks of Jesus being poured out for our sins. Nine, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paden Aram and blessed him. So sorry. Going, going backwards. Got to go forward. Go with me here. Let's keep reading. Fifteen. Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. And they journeyed from Bethel. They were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor. And she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. Literally, with her dying breath, Rachel has named her son Ben-Oni, which means the son of my sorrow. If there's anyone that understands the importance of a name, it's Jacob. And Jacob says, we're not doing it. And he changes it. Now listen, this is the wife that he loves. This was her very final breath. She says, this is the son of my sorrow. The wife he loves names, her with her dying, names him with her dying breath. And Jacob has the wherewithal to say, all of that aside, his name is not Benoni. It's Benjamin. He knows there's something very important about the things you are called I'm not going to let you be called the son of sorrow all of your life. Remember, the, think of the narrative this kid would have grown up with. You're the one that killed our mom. You're the reason she's dead. You think that might do, do a number on your mind? If there's anyone that understands that, it's Jacob. And by the way, moms and dads, you probably should understand that with your own children. You tell them over and over and over they're screw-ups. You think that could do something to their mind? 
Do you think that gives them a kind of picture of who you are and who they are? Yeah? It's, it's very often that people think of God as a father in terms of their own fathers. So dads, listen. It might be instructive for you to take note. I have sons that screw up a lot. Their dad screws up a lot. My nickname for them is not going to be screw up. Understand where I'm going with this? I feel like I don't really need to harp on that. Jacob changes his name from Ben-Oni, the son of sorrow, to Benjamin, the son of my right hand. Now that's a name of honor, of strength. 19, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. By the way, this is the first mention of Bethlehem in the Bible. There are actually two Bethlehems, one in the north, one in the south. This is the one in the south, which is also why you'll see later on this Bethlehem will sometimes be called Bethlehem Judea or Bethlehem Ephrath. It's to distinguish it from the other one. This is the Bethlehem. It's the place where, you know, Ruth will glean in the fields of Boaz and the Savior will be born, all that good stuff. Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. This is verse 20. The pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is still there to this day. So in the midst of this revival, Jacob is experiencing personal revival. In the midst of it, he's also experiencing his deepest of sorrows. True revival does not mean it will be without pain. Sometimes it's in the midst of pain. Rachel was the wife he loved. He worked 14 years for her. She was his true love. And so he set up a pillar over her tomb. Why? I want everybody to remember her. I want you to remember who she was. Because she was his true love, I, I believe it was because she was his true love, his, the two sons now are without a mother. And those two sons would basically become daddy's favorites. And I'm not saying that that's without warrant. I'm sure he's taking extra care because it's the, it's the, the mother that he loves is dead and gone now. But, but that uh, favoritism will also set up a rivalry and a jealousy that's going to drive the narrative later. 21, Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. This is likely, I won't go into this deeply, this is likely a ploy from Reuben to make sure he becomes the patriarch of the family later. This is kind of a sly way. These kind of things were done in that culture. I think Reuben is looking around and going, you know what? I'm the next one in line, and this, this, will, this will solidify it. It may have been something that his mother coached him into even. We don't know. Eventually it backfires on him, though. Because remember, it's for that reason that Jacob will pass over him and end up giving the blessing to Judah, his fourth-born son. So probably after that, Reuben was kind of consigned to making corned beef sandwiches for the family. Get it? Reuben sandwiches? Huh? Yep. It's pretty bad. You're not wrong. Let's keep reading. <laughs> it's bad, man. Just think, if those are the things, just think of all the things I don't say, though. Huh? I hold back for you guys. The sons of Leah, Re uh, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. This is verse 23. 24, the sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, 
Rachel's servant were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paden Aram. Notice, Dinah is not mentioned, which says something. Jacob comes to his father Isaac at Mamre, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last, and he died. He was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Notice, by the way, that Jacob had the honor and good sense to notify Esau. The brother that had told him, someday I'm going to kill you. Jacob is still acting with honor toward his brother. Even though his brother, you know, they had a past. They bury their father together. Here's the point. Here's the whole point. I'll close with this. The point of all of this is that we see Jacob coming back to the place he's been before. But this time, rather than his eyes being on everything around him, his eyes are on God. The El Bethel, his eyes are on the God of the house of God. And I'm asking today, I hope the Lord will do a work in your heart. Draw your eyes back to the God of your faith. Not to the blessings that God can give you, not to the blessings God can bestow on you, but to the one who is the source of those blessings, God himself. Let our eyes be back on the El Bethel, the God of the house of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you would give us grace today, Lord. Let our eyes be on you. Just as Jacob was pulled back from the doldrums of a faith that was lackluster, and his eyes were again riveted on you, God, please do the same here. Spark revival in our midst. Not, not, not the kind of revival that we've seen billboards for, Lord. True revival. Let our eyes be back fixed on you. Let us be willing to sacrifice for you, to worship you through the, the, the holiness that we live with, to worship you through the sacrifices that we make, to worship you through the things that we remember. Let us be a people whose eyes are fixed on you. We thank you for it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we ask, and all God's people said, Amen. If you, if you would stand as we sing.